Section 59 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments, Case Studies, Chapter 12, Part 1 observational data gathering supplies of uranium to build atomic bombs a remote sparsely inhabited site to test the bombs information about the health effects of both the raw material and the bomb these were the cold war needs that led directly to the events with which this chapter is concerned this chapter examines whether the u s government wronged or harmed uranium miners in the american west and Marshall Islanders in the mid-Pacific, in both cases, by exposing them to radiation hazards, in the case of the miners, by failing to inform them about the risk and failing to mitigate it, and in both cases, perhaps to different degrees, by studying them without having obtained adequate consent. Although the mines of the Colorado Plateau and the seas surrounding the atolls of the Marshall Islands were seen by the U.S. policy planners as ideal sites for the government's primary missions, mining uranium and detonating atomic and hydrogen bombs, they became laboratories for studying radiation damage to humans. We also touch briefly on a radiation experiment conducted with a view to the natural laboratory in which the subjects were set. In 1956 and 1957, the Air Force administered iodine-131 to Alaskan residents to determine the role of the thyroid gland in adapting to extreme cold. The uranium mines, the Marshall Islands, and Alaska were not, of course, the first such occasions for studying the effects of radiation on people. As has been reported in earlier chapters, radium dial painters were studied and in the largest epidemiological study of radiation effects ever the survivors of the hiroshima and nagasaki bombs continue to be followed the atomic bomb casualty commission now the radiation effects research foundation began its work soon after world war ii this organization's projects include a mortality study a periodic health examination study a study of people exposed in utero, and a genetic effects study. Some of the most important data available on long-term radiation risks have come from these studies. These data have also provided the basis for most current radiation exposure standards. The Hiroshima-Nagasaki studies are different from the cases of the uranium miners and the Marshallese, however because the exposure ended before the epidemiologic study got underway. While the miners and the Marshallese, after their high initial exposure, were subjected to continuous exposure to radiation, relatively high for the miners, relatively low for the Marshallese, they were not exposed for the purpose of studying the effects of radiation on their health. But the exposures resulting from the mining and bomb tests provided the government an opportunity and some would say a duty to collect needed information on radiation effects on human beings. In both cases, researchers were interested in determining the health consequences of exposure to specific 
in quantified forms and levels of ionizing radiation over a long term. For the miners, it was radon gas and its radioactive decay product. For the Marshallese, it was the fallout products of nuclear explosions such as iodine-131, strontium-90, and cesium-137. Also, in both cases, the United States has provided, and in the case of the miners, continues to provide, financial compensation. In addition, a class-action lawsuit, Begay v. United States, was brought on behalf of a group of Navajo miners. There were, however, major differences between the situation of the miners and that of the Marshallese. In the case of the miners, the research was conducted even though there were data from European studies clearly indicating that uranium miners were at high risk for lung cancer, which could have been substantially mitigated by ventilating the mines. The study of the miners, conducted by the public health service, was epidemiological in nature and unrelated to their clinical care. The Marshallese were the first population exposed to amounts of fallout perceived as acutely dangerous. The long-term effects of exposures to fallout were unknown. Therefore, it was important to gather data while treating the exposed population. It appears that the medical monitoring of the exposed population was directly integrated with the management of their health care. To gather information on the health effects of radiation, federal government agencies mounted observational studies, a term indicating that the conditions of exposure were not under the control of the investigator who is studying the health effect. For a long time, while they were being studied, it seems evident that no one explained to the miners the extent to which their exposure to radiation might be hazardous, and, in many cases, lethal. Nor, it appears, were they told that ventilation of the mines could significantly reduce the hazard. And evidently no one seems to have told the miners the true purposes of the research. With respect to the Marshallese, Efforts to explain to them the purpose of the studies and the hazards of their contaminated environment were inadequate well into the 1960s, and the difference between medical care and treatment-related research was not clearly explained. The advisory committee reports here on both studies and concludes with a discussion of the cold-weather experiment in Alaska in which servicemen, Eskimos, and Indians were given tracer amounts of iodine-131. We begin with the uranium miners. The uranium miners. The competition with the Soviet Union to build atomic arsenals spurred a uranium boom. In the late 1940s, there was a perceived need for a large and reliable domestic source of uranium to replace supplies predominantly from the Belgian Congo and to a lesser degree canada the aec's announcement in 1948 that it would purchase at a guaranteed price all the ore that was mined set off a stampede on the colorado plateau hundreds of mines ranging from mines run by the prospectors themselves to larger corporate operations were opened in the four corners of arizona new mexico utah and colorado and several thousand miners many of them Navajo, went to work. Some of the mines were large open pits, but most were underground networks of shafts, caverns, and tunnels, shored up by timbers. 
because uranium milling and open pit mining is conducted above ground radon levels tend to be quite low as radon is readily dispersed into the atmosphere however millers are exposed to uranium dust and thorium-230 both of which may have chemical or radiological toxicity as well as additional chemicals used in the extraction process in the remainder of this chapter we focus on the underground miners who are exposed to much higher levels of hazards that are the principal cause of lung cancer in the miners the american boom followed centuries of experience with uranium mining in europe where a mysterious malady had been killing silver and uranium miners at an early age in the erzgebirge or mountains on the border between what is now czech republic and germany in eighteen seventy nine two researchers identified the d's as intrathoracic malignancy they reported that a miner's life expectancy was twenty years after entering the mine and about seventy five per cent of the miners died of lung cancer by nineteen thirty two both germany and czechoslovakia had deemed the miners cancers a compensable occupational disease in nineteen forty two wilhelm c huber a german emigre who was founding director of the environmental cancer section of the national cancer institute nci one of the national institutes of health published a review in english of the literature on the european miners suggesting that radon gas was implicated in causing lung cancer he eliminated non-occupational factors because excess lung cancer showed up only among miners he also eliminated occupational factors other than radon because these other factors had not caused lung cancer in other occupational settings among huber's peers dissenters such as egon lorenz also of the nci focused on the contaminants other than radon in the mine the possible genetic susceptibility of the population and the calculated doses to the lung which seemed too low to cause cancer because of the role of radon daughters which the radioactive polonium bismuth and lead decay products of radon gas are known as was not yet understood at the time its own program began the aec had many reasons for concern that the experience of the czech and german miners portended excess lung cancer deaths for uranium miners in the united states the factors included the following one no respected scientist challenged the finding that the czech and german miners had an elevated rate of lung cancer two these findings were well known to the american decision makers three as huber points out genetic and non-occupational factors could be rejected and four radon standards existed for other industries and there was no reason to think that conditions in mines rule out the need for such standards moreover as soon as the government began to measure airborne radon levels in the western u s uranium mines they found higher levels than those reported in the european mines where excess cancers had been observed as public health service phs sanitary engineer duncan holliday who spent many years studying the miners recalled in nineteen fifty nine congressional testimony there was early recognition that while there were substantial differences between european and american settings the exposure levels in the u s mines were high 
in nineteen forty six our american mines were not as deep as those in europe the men did not work long hours furthermore a great many of them are more or less transient miners in and out of the industry however our early environmental studies in these early american mines indicated that we had concentrations of radioactive gases considerably in excess of those that had been reported in the literature one important hole in huber's argument was that the calculated dose of radiation from the radon in european mines did not seem high enough to cause cancer but when william bale of the university of rochester and john harley a scientist at the aec's new york operations office NYOO, who was working toward his doctorate at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, were able to show and explain in 1951 the importance of radioactive particles that attached to bits of dust and remained in the lung. The discovery had a tremendous impact. When doses to the lung were recalculated using Bale and Harley's models, they increased 76 times making them high enough to explain the observed cancer rates. Recognizing the importance of radon daughters also explained why animal experiments using pure radon gas had not caused cancer. In the absence of Atomic Energy Commission willingness to press for relatively safe tolerance levels for radon in the U.S. mines, and to institute an effective program of mine ventilation to reduce the hazard and a mixed but mainly unsatisfactory response from the states the stage was set for the intergovernmental buck passing and decades of study a course that resulted in the premature deaths of hundreds of miners an analysis of eleven underground miner studies published in nineteen ninety four by the national cancer institute supports the view that radon daughters are responsible for an even greater number of lung cancers than previously believed. The advisory committee heard from many miners and their families about the devastation wrought by the experience in the mines and the government's ability to prevent it. Dorothy Ann Purley, from the Pueblo of Laguna in New Mexico, told advisory committee members at a public meeting in Santa Fe, Quote, nowadays people come out and say did you know so-and-so died of cancer i have a brother-in-law who has got cancer he worked at the mine Close quote. philip harrison a spokesman for navajo miners and their families told the advisory committee that in new mexico mines the working conditions were sometimes unbearable the government knew all along what the outcome would be and initiated studies of the miners without their knowledge and consent. A standard for beryllium, but not for uranium. In 1948, Merrill Eisenbud, an industrial hygienist, was recruited by the AEC's New York Operations Office to help set up a health and safety laboratory. The NYOO was responsible for all raw materials procurement for the AEC. At the request of the AEC, Raw Material Division, Dr. Eisenbud and Dr. Bernard Wolf, a radiologist, reported on potential health hazards in the mines to the NYOO field office in Colorado and to AEC headquarters staff. Dr. Eisenbud and the New York Operations Office 
recommended that the AEC write requirements for health protection into its contracts with the mine operators. The AEC had used contract provisions in the case of beryllium, another key but not radioactive element in bomb production. One month before Dr. Eisenbud filed his report on the uranium mines, the Cleveland News reported on a conference convened to discuss cases of beryllium poisoning at plants in Massachusetts and Lorain, Ohio. Among the fatalities in Lorain were five residents living near the Beryllium Corporation plant. The plant owner, Dr. Eisenbud, recalled in 1995 was eager to have conditions studied because he wanted to know what his liability was. That same month, June 1948, responding to the considerable publicity given by the press to cases of berliosis among plant workers and residents, the AEC set a tentative standard for the permissible levels of exposure to beryllium. The NYOO, with the approval of the Division of Biology and Medicine, has insisted that the AEC recommended tolerance levels be met in all plants processing beryllium or beryllium compounds for the Commission. Despite the fact that by September 1949 there had been at least 27 deaths attributed to beryllium in plants where the AEC had contracts, no one became sick with berliosis after the tolerance limits had been set in place, the DBM objected to the AEC establishing and enforcing standards or regulations pertaining to health and safety conditions, and wanted to turn the matter over to the states. Nevertheless, the NYOO enforced standards for beryllium. The uranium and beryllium situations had much in common. In both cases, the AEC was the sole or primary purchaser. In both cases, the AEC's New York Operations Office sought to control the hazard. And in both cases, there were arguments to be made for inaction. The causation mechanism for the disease was poorly understood, and the legal authority of the AEC to regulate private production was questionable. The essential difference between the two cases was that the illness caused by beryllium appeared shortly after exposure and aroused publicity and associated public concern. By contrast, it would take more than a decade before uranium miners would begin to die of lung cancer and causality would be harder to infer. The DBM and the AEC Raw Materials Division rejected Dr. Eisenbud's recommendation for health protection, arguing that the Atomic Energy Act did not give the AEC authority over uranium mine health and safety. The New York Operations Office took the same position that it had taken on beryllium. If it was going to procure uranium, it was going to control radon in the mines. The AEC responded by transferring uranium procurement to a newly created section of the Raw Materials Division in Washington. According to Dr. Eisenbud, the director of the New York Operations Office and many of its employees quit over this move, at least some of them because the shift was intended to keep the AEC out of health-related matters in the uranium mining industry. Eisenbud's perspective was echoed in at least part of the AEC's Washington office. 
In May 1949, A. E. Gorman, a sanitary engineer at the AEC, wrote a memo for the files in which he reported on a meeting with Louis A. Young, director of the Colorado Department of Health's Division of Sanitation, and Dr. John C. Bowers, deputy director of the Division of Biology and Medicine. Bowers indicated that health conditions on the Colorado Plateau were not satisfactory, and Mr. Young reported that conditions under which uranium ore was being mined and processed were not good. Bowers, the memo recorded, said his office did not want to recommend drastic steps to require correction of deficiencies, but preferred to gather facts about the hazard and cooperate with mine operators and state agencies to correct unsatisfactory conditions. Gorman, however, recorded, I expressed the opinion that if the state of Colorado had only two inspectors to cover industrial hygienic conditions in all mines in the state, it would not be realistic to expect very extensive follow-up of the hazard problems involving silicosis and radioactivity. Also, that since the AEC was purchasing a very large percentage of the uranium produced, we had a moral responsibility at least to improve any unsatisfactory condition which was known to exist involving the health of the workers. I suggested that this might be taken care of by a clause in our contracts, even though it might result in a higher cost of production. I questioned the point that such action might seriously affect the production of uranium. Gorman's perspective did not win out. By the 1950s, occupational standards or guidelines existed not only for radium, a maximum permissible body burden, but also for radon. By 1941, the data from the European mines had been used to establish a radon standard for air in plant, laboratory, or office of 10 picocuries per liter. But when it came to the mines, the federal government took nearly two decades to issue enforceable standards and actions to protect all those miners known to be exposed to significant risk. Instead, it debated responsibility for action while it pursued a long course of epidemiological study. The episode, the judge would declare in the Begay case decision in 1984, was a tragedy of the nuclear age. End of section 59